โมตัสสะปะกวาโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะปะกวาโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะปะกวาโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนัมมัสสะมิ Well, it's great to see you all here this evening. Some old friends haven't seen for a while, as well as the regulars. Those of you who haven't been here for a while probably don't know that we're we're working through the Mangala Sutta, the Maha Mangala Sutta, the discourse on great blessings, and uh, for the three months of the Wasa, we're we're learning this to recite this together in English. And so, uh, some, of the, some of the evening talks of late have have been addressing some of these stanzas, helping us be mindful of what we're chanting. It's a very beautiful sutta. Taken the whole thing together, or just taken each stanza. I think the last one was living in places of suitable kinds that Ajahn Abhinando. Addressed, and so the next verse, accomplished in learning and craftsman's skills, with discipline highly trained, and speech that is true and pleasant to hear. These are the highest blessings. Throughout this sutta, uh, one of the things that uh, stands out to me, ever since I first read it in English many years ago, thirty something years ago, I. It, the impre- thing that impressed me was the the way in which this sutta uh, encourages us to be aware in all aspects of our life. I think the tendency in all religious traditions is a risk of of splitting off our religious life from the rest of our life. Um, I've seen this. Um, My own case, uh, very early on in life, but also even still now, there, there can be this this uh, dislocation from what people might do in what they call the spiritual domain of their life, and then everything else they do, like the way they make money and their politics and so on and so forth. But all Buddhist teachings, and and and, and most clearly in this this sutta, the Buddha is encouraging us to bring our practice in all areas of our life, and and in this. This stanza here, accomplished in learning and craftsman skills, in very practical, everyday things, but is holding this up as a high blessing, with discipline highly trained, and speech that is true and pleasant to hear. The whole body, speech, and mind training, and understanding that the quality of our lives, the way we. Feel about life basically is the result of the karma we create, the effort we make, and effort, as we all know, the Buddha uh, described karma, as we all know, the Buddha described as as intention. So it's the intention behind our actions of body, speech, and mind, and to pay attention to all of these, the whole, on all levels, in all actions, not just when we're. In the monastery, or not just when we're sitting meditation, being careful, but in everything we do, and and the consequence, uh, the Buddha was pointing out, the consequence of of paying attention in all these areas, body, speech, and mind, 
is that we can really take responsibility for ourselves. We can feel secure. You know, one of the last verses in this, the second to last verse in this, this sutta talks about finding a state of mind that is uh, beyond sorrow, spotless and secure. Kemang, asokang wirajang kemang. The mind that is that is unshakable, that is secure, that is free from grief, that is that that feeling of of being safe is something that is attractive to all beings, isn't it? And not just human beings, but animals likewise, are always looking for how to feel safe, how to feel secure. And and this is what we mean when we say, "I go for refuge." I go for refuge to the Buddha, I go for refuge to the Dhamma, I go for refuge to the Sangha. That means that we orient our lives towards those things that we believe, we trust, offer real safety, real security, real identity. Now, if we don't know our real identity, if we don't know who we really are, then we get confused, obviously. (laughs) Very confused. And... And for the last week here in the, this Dhamma Hall, Ajinabhinanda has been leading a meditation retreat. We've had 20 guests staying here all day from whatever time in the morning until late at night, uh, making this effort to find out who they are. Or maybe to find out who they're not. That's sometimes what it is. Yeah. We often make the mistake of thinking we're something that we're not, and that's what causes the confusion, isn't it? We, we get around thinking we're the body, and then something falls off, <laughs> or goes wrong, or whatever. Yeah, and think, oops, well, that's not me. Or we, we think we're our reputation, and, and we lose our reputation. We think we're our health, whatever. So yeah, the Buddha pointed out that... Uh, not knowing the real is the real yeah, causes us to suffer. And, but then that Dhammapada verse says, seeing the false as the false and the real as the real, we attain to the perfectly real. So a lot of our practice, a lot of our training is, it seems to me, about coming to recognize the false as the false. Then maybe eventually the real is the real. And moving towards the perfectly real, perfectly real being that state of complete understanding, complete freedom from delusion, complete freedom from ignorance, so complete freedom, full stop. But in the meanwhile, we do need to constantly put effort into looking at where we get it wrong, you know, seeing the false as the false. And every time we do that, well, we feel good. We say, oh, that's false. That was a false identity. That's not my true identity. In the beginning, it can be a bit scary. And you, so you start to look inwards and look at our minds. We haven't done it before. We, we can get a pretty rude awakening. We start realizing that you know, some of the things that go on in our mind are not who and what we are really at all. Like in meditation, you see the thoughts that pass through the mind. And if you're sitting there after a while, it's like your thoughts become like some radio that's playing or so if I'm sitting here watching my thoughts how can the thoughts be me and then feelings also sensations all these things that these objects of attention they say well maybe this isn't me after all well then who am I and it, it can be a bit scary 
But if we have a commitment to the refuges, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, which we trust symbolize our true identity, well, then we can have a sense of safety, of security, and encourage us in our efforts to keep observing and recognizing the false as the false. And so this is something that uh, we're encouraged to do in all aspects of our life, formally and informally, and formal practice and daily life practice, and wherever we are. Um, while Ajahnabhinanda was teaching the retreat here and all these seriously uh, peaceful, committed meditators here, I was busy going around used car lots in Newcastle <laughs> and, uh, because our old Volvo is um, about to bite the dust, as they say. And um, somebody very generously offered a, a, a donation to the monastery, which meant that we were going to be able to replace it. And so a good friend of the community offered to take me around to find a new car. And it's not something, you know, it's not my favorite activity. I'd much rather somebody else did it. But Ajahn Ebenando was, he was leading a retreat. So that was left with me. And so I'm thankful for the help I had. But it was a very interesting experience going around looking at used cars and to observe the amount of energy people put into their cars. And I got to reflecting on how it is the case that a lot of people find identity in what they have and the car is one of the biggest things people have you have a house and you have a car these cars are expensive you probably know a lot more about these things than I do but cars are expensive and what's looking at the people trying to sell the cars all these used car salesmen well, they've all got a tan I don't know have you noticed that all used car salesmen seem to have a tan I asked one of them how come they all have a tan he didn't answer my question <laughs> I don't know whether it was a chemical one or an electric one or, or a Spanish one. They all seem to have a tight town. They all seem to have nice watches as well. <coughs> Used car salesmen are all into watches and funny business. And um, But then the people, not just the people selling, but also the other people on the other side of the desk, the people buying it, worrying about whether they're getting the right car or not and looking at how it affected me, whether this good friend who was helping buy a new car for the monastery... Uh, yeah, the energy that goes into paying attention to what we have and, and this is the case isn't it that we find we can find identity in what we have having a new car having a nice house I heard about this one guy he, he couldn't believe this he spent £260,000 on a car can you believe that? 260000 smackers on a Rolls Royce and do you know what happened? The windscreen wiper broke. <laughs> I think his sense of identity was probably a little shaken. That's what happens, isn't it? When you know we invest a lot in what we have, and then we get upset. Why? Because it feels like me. I define myself in terms of what I have. Yeah, I, some people I notice as people come to the monastery and say, "Oh, you've got such a lovely monastery," and then I feel, "Oh, that's me. That's mine." That's my monastery. I built it. Well, I didn't, of course, build it. You know, I had, I had something to do with it. But, you know, I can confess this to you because I think, you know, we all go through something like this and it's a good thing to reflect on. Where we find identity and what we have is one of the things we look at. One of the things that we, we, we find identity in. And, and so practice is um, just seeing that's false. What happens if somebody smashes? We get this brand new car on Thursday or Friday, whatever it is, and, and Jay takes it out for a drive and somebody smashes it. What happens? Well, actually, it's all right. The insurance will cover it and we'll probably get more than we paid for it. So, 
so long as Jay's all right, it's not not too big a problem. But or if somebody comes and damages our dumber hall here, you know, we uh, we've turned off the burglar alarm in the dumber hall because we thought the insurance people insisted that we had a burglar alarm on in here, and it got put in while I was away overseas some years ago, and. I came back and I, I don't know, I just, I guess I just assumed that we must have had to have it, but we found out lately, recently, that we don't have to have the burger alarm on in here and it costs a lot of money to have the thing maintained and then the flies disturb it at night, which sets the alarm off and then that sets the other monks off um, in the middle of the night having to get up and turn the burger alarm off. So uh, what happens if somebody comes in and damages our demo hall? How do I feel? You know, where does it get me? It gets me deep, I would expect. Well, what happened when the Taliban blew up the Bamiyang Buddhas? You know, our religion. That's another place we find identity, isn't it? In what we believe. If my beliefs are threatened and then I get upset, why am I getting upset? Well, if somebody blows up an old Buddha in Afghanistan, I mean, what's the problem? I mean, I don't mean to be gross, but, you know, why do we get upset? It's because we're finding identity in something that's not true identity. Thankfully, uh, I noticed that when that those Birmingham Buddhas were blown up, the very few Buddhists that I heard of um, vented a lot of anger or, or indignation. Of course, people were all upset. It was a, a terrible thing to do, and... I hear there's this Japanese man now who has this program to to use laser beam to um, direct these light Buddhas onto the cliffs. Whether it's going to be the same thing as solid substantial Buddhas, I'm not quite sure. But uh, And also looking at how we find identity in what we feel. Now we can, you know, if you go on a meditation retreat and you go home and you feel nice and peaceful and feel contented for a while and uh, and then it changes and you start as happens because stimulus increases and the lovely feeling that comes from being a group of meditators together sharing something that we value and are committed to that environment is really supportive and really helpful and, and there's nothing stimulating the senses and very much mm-hmm. quiet place to be in quiet people to be with and so it's relatively easy to settle into a, a quiet place within ourselves and feel good and then go back out to spend time with perhaps people and in places and the smell of you know, this is what got me when I went into Newcastle that day the smell of, of uh, tobacco going around different places looking for cars people smoke cigarettes and so many cars smell of dogs now I don't have anything against dogs but you know the way English people put their dogs in their cars I, I, can never, I could never understand it anyway you know, these smells and sounds the noises of sirens going off and things banging and so on it's disturbing to the senses and then coming back here at the end of the day it was so silent it's just this wonderful sense of stillness and I really yeah by contrast it's quite stunning 
but then reflecting on well the way we feel is not that's not a secure identity if we attach to how we feel like being peaceful if that's this is who I am I'm peaceful feeling good about ourselves feeling peaceful when our peacefulness is still relative peacefulness the uh, the secure refuge the Buddha was talking at the end of this discourse was the security the the state of mind that is sorrowless spotless and secure that's the state of mind that that is freed from all attachments all all uh, attachments to false identities all delusion but when our sense of well-being our, our good feelings are still relative and are dependent upon a peaceful environment and nice harmonious company and nice smells well then to recognize that still leaves us vulnerable so finding identity in what we have finding identity in what we believe finding identity in sensory experience sight, sound, smells, tastes and so on all of these are false source of security we're not really safe if we look to these for a sense of identity or nationality, that's another one that I've been reflecting on now that um, the French and the Dutch was it rejected the the European constitution or something or other and put a cat amongst the pigeons the European politicians were a bit surprised and now there's this big question of what is Europe anyway and this program, this project of bringing all of Europe together a certain assumption that among some people that everybody wanted to be one great big happy European family cuts right through the feeling that the rest of the people have which is actually well I'm quite happy being Belgian or being French or being English or being Scottish or being Italian or whatever there's something also that is uh, really important to reflect on you see it at football matches displayed very vividly our team and the sense of identity, my nationality and my national pride and it, it, I, I feel quite conflicted when, well you know recently when the Lions went to play the All Blacks in New Zealand and you know, I carry both a British and a New Zealand passport and I, I felt torn between the Lions and the All Blacks and I guess I confess that my deepest, strongest identity is with the All Blacks because when they beat the Lions I was happy and uh, I, you know, it's not something I meant to feel, it's just how it happened. Um, so probably what that says is that we get most of our identity conditioned in our early life because I've spent more time living in Britain than I have in New Zealand. So our conditioned national identity is something worth looking at as well. You know, I notice when I go home to New Zealand, the smells of New Zealand it brings up all these emotions and, and strong feelings and, and a sense of me. You know, me and, and then I, I see the All Blacks doing the haka, you know the haka before the, you know, I'd like to do one for you but it's probably a bit <laughs> undignified, I, I know m- most of the words but it's a bit undignified to <laughs> get up and do a haka for you but when I hear a haka you know I want to cry, you know all this emotion from my childhood comes up and and well that's me, you can f- find our identity in that but uh, that sort of stuff can be so easily manipulated, I mean, you you don't have to look very far to see how we're national identity uh, if we're attached to that and we really believe in that where that gets us so we don't want to dismiss it because there's energy in it but 
I think with mindfulness to investigate and to look and see well that that's not a safe identity that's not a safe source of security and so remembering reflecting we're seeing the false is the false we're not we're not trying to necessarily imagine the real say well what is the real refuge what is the real security well if we're still lost in the false we can't imagine the real but the Buddha said if we see the false as the false if we keep paying attention to that which is false and say well that's not secure that's not secure that's not secure and little by little we let go we're moving towards the real and um, so maybe this is something that, um, that many of you have experienced that uh, as we reflect in this way and we, we let go of we stop investing so much energy in these uh, synthetic identities these artificial identities these false identities not getting rid of them, not dismissing them not saying there shouldn't be any such thing as national pride not saying we shouldn't have any possessions or we shouldn't have any beliefs but not holding to them so rigidly, so tightly not investing so much energy into them what we move more towards is a sense of confidence in awareness itself and I would suggest that that this is the safe refuge that is worth aiming for Uh, we're not trying to imagine what a real refuge is or what a real identity is but the Buddha did encourage us to go for refuge to Dhamma go for refuge to the Buddha go for refuge to Sangha go for refuge to these principles and you say well what is the Buddha the, the Buddha is awareness itself when awareness is completely unobstructed when awareness is completely undefiled when awareness is completely undistorted then it functions perfectly and then we don't make mistakes we don't attach to things and then we don't suffer and yet the path of practice of moving out of our false identities into this true identity of awareness itself is not an easy thing and it's easy to talk about but as we let go of our attachments and we we haven't yet found real confidence in this awareness then we can get caught up and uh, it's a tricky path and so one of the things that's uh, consistently encouraged in this path of practice is that the the virtues or the principles the guidelines in spiritual life about keeping moral discipline about developing steadiness of mind about developing patience and loving kindness these things may not be the goal in themselves but they're really important supports on the way reading support really important and that's what the sutta is about developing these qualities in everyday life these virtues in everyday life because developing becoming accomplished in learning and craftsman skills and discipline and speech and loving kindness and patience and 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 all these things if we develop them as an end of themselves and and grasp them and find try to find identity in that and say well I'm a disciplined person this is me or or I'm somebody who's really skilled or learned or whatever what happens when you get old I'm not even 60 my memory's going already and what's it going to be like in the future I dread to think what I'm going to be like when I'm in a or gaga in a wheelchair and going around I don't know what I'm going to say I dread to think 
<laughs> I mean, when you, you know, when Ajahn Chah, this is very interesting actually, when Ajahn Chah got old, I didn't hear this myself, but I heard it reported that when he got old and he had, um, I think he had a series of small brain hemorrhages, and then eventually they did an operation where there's a build of pressure in the blood in his brain, they tried to put a pump in, and they took too much blood off, and the pressure went too low, and he, he lost a big function part of his brain. But at one stage, before it all went, he lost his speech. I heard a reporter that he said that uh, when he wants to say something, he wants to say like, Sumato, come here. And he opens his mouth, and what comes out is, Anando, come here. That's one of the other monks. So he knows what he wants to say, but his brain's not working anymore in the way it's supposed to, or the way he wanted it to, the way it used to. And so he knows that. And so he says, you know, when the freedom is not even in your brain. The freedom is in the knowing. The freedom is in the sati. The freedom is in the awareness. And so in the path of trying to find true identity, it's the cultivation of developing sati panya, truth discerning awareness, that really counts. Yeah. Now we're not trying, as again, to say we're not trying to imitate that, but we're exercising that. And we exercise that by considering the false is the false. Every time we catch ourselves out being caught up in something false, we recognize it. Oh, right, that was a false identity. That was a false source of security. Attaching to that is not going to give me the sense of safety and freedom that I'm looking for. So I hope this reflection is of some use for you this evening. Thank you very much for your attention. Mm-hmm.